Hello and welcome to a fresh episode of NBRI, New Business and Retail Insights from the Center for Retailing Studies, Maine's Business School, Texas A&M University. I'm your host, Venki Shankar, Director of Research and Coleman Chair, Professor of Marketing. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome our guest today, Dr. Norris Bruce, Associate Professor of Marketing at the Naveen Jindal School of Management, University of Texas at Dallas. Norris's research focuses on the use of incentives in the marketing of durables, most importantly, the effectiveness of advertising and many contexts, including sequential distribution of motion pictures, the dual effects of advertising on sales and brand building, the effects of pulling and forgetting um, on multi-theme advertising, the effects of ad format, message content in digital advertising, and the moderating effects of brand messages in TV advertising. It's published widely in Marketing Science, Journal of Marketing Research, International Journal of Research and Marketing, Journal of Interactive Marketing, among others. Uh, Norris has a PhD in marketing from Duke University. Thank you, Norris, for joining me in this conversation today. How have you been in the last few months? Coping with, uh, well, uh, it's been a difficult time for all of us, right? It's, it's been a global pandemic. And, um, but uh, my wife was a nurse. And so we have a strict protocol at home. <laughs> once, you, once you visit us, you're required to wear a mask. And uh, we have all kinds of, uh, you know, cleaning products at home. And we have good. just in case things get difficult. Okay, so, so you're well prepared and it looks like you're you're practicing all those uh, safety guidelines very well. So that's great to know. Um, before we get started, I, I did manage to describe you the way that I thought I have seen your research and I've always been fascinated with your work. Uh, but how would you describe yourself in maybe five words or less? If there are five adjectives or five phrases that you could use to describe yourself, what would those be? It, it, on a personal level, I, I think all of us in academia would share some traits. Would you agree? <laughs> sure. But I think uh, all of us in some sense are, are resourceful, right? We have to innovate in all kinds of settings uh, um, when resources are scarce. You know, we have to innovate around reviewers and so on and so forth. So I think, like all of us, uh, I think I'm pretty resourceful uh, in that sense. Um, I'm also quite optimistic uh, in my outlook about life and research. Um, uh, I always find uh, sort of the silver lining in every dark cloud. And that's my mother's gift. <laughs> uh, that's great. Of course, I'm patient. And that is very much required during these tough times. Absolutely. So thank you. Yeah, patient because things will get better, but they'll get worse first. Right? Um, I have a sort of independent streak, though, both in terms of thinking and, and work that I do. Um, and, you know, my father always said to me to be respectful first to people and then to titles in that order. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of humble as well, especially in terms of my work. I, I think everything I do can be improved, right? And I always that's try great to, to hear, yeah. outdo myself every time. It doesn't happen, but that's the objective. And that I think kind of sums me up a little bit. That's great. That's, uh, you be modest yourself, the way that you approach uh, your adjectives or descriptions. That's a good start. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your research journey. Where did you get started and yes. what, are, what are the twists and turns and yes, yes. where are you right now? <laughs> That's an interesting question because I'm sure you have many as well, right? Um, I remember when I was a, if I go far back, when I was a PhD student, um, in my very first, one of my very first classes, I was given assignment to write some, some code to simulate some things. 
and you can see the stats from us. And I, and I did it, and the professor was quite surprised. Um, he didn't know that my background was in computer science and programming. But as a result, though, he was very open. And, and I, through that connection with him, I kind of fell in love with what they were doing in Bayesian statistics. So it has an influence on the kind of work, my methodology in particular. So that was a turning point. So the, there was a prior in yes, your case. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Sorry to use the term. <laughs> yes, I, I developed a prior. <laughs> right. Okay. And it was not only in terms of uh, substance and what they were teaching, but also in the human dimension as well, right? You have people, you know, reaching out to you and saying, you know, here's how you want to think about problems. So it got me a really nice start in, in being comfortable at Duke. And, and uh, they were very inviting that department. The other thing uh, I would say, a uh, turning point is when I was trying to get ready for my thesis, um, I was struggling to, to settle on a topic. I would find, as you know, right, PSU students, <laughs> you're finding a topic every day. And the problem was that I was trying to have, get everything aligned, not only the question, but also the approach. And Rick Stalin, my advisor, gave me a data set and said, take a look at this. And just by looking at the data set, I found an interesting question. Oh, great. And that question, I fell in love with the question and said, I'm going to follow this question regardless of the methodology. Okay. And so that, I think, is when I fell in love with the research process of discovering yeah. something that I don't think anybody else knew. What that, was that question? If you... it, was, it was about, uh, essentially gave me an automobile promotion data set, right? Durable promotion. And I looked at the data set and saw that there were some automobile manufacturers, right? Toyota, for example, that were using trade promotions extensively. This is manufactured dealer promotions extensively. And there were others that were hardly using these things. So the question is why? Why firms in the same industry? Are and what did you find? The issue was that the, the high quality manufacturer was using these trade, these are quality based, performance based trade promotions. They were using them to influence quantity and prices in the market. Right? So they were offering these quantity trade promotions that forced, encouraged dealers to set a certain price, a price that they would set if they were making the decision themselves. In other words, it was mitigating the double pricing problem. Right? right. And, so and that it was solves it double marginalization. Precisely. It, it, well, it, didn't, it mitigated it. Eh? It mitigated right. it because it didn't resolve it entirely. It wouldn't be exactly what the manufacturer would do, but it was close enough. And so uh, that was very exciting to me. And, um, and after that, how did you end up with advertising for most of your research? Ah, there you go. So um, one of the things that I, again, again, I came to market as a theorist, right? A game theory guy. And, and, but I essentially was a, a, someone who liked to work with data, right? An empiricist at heart. And my training was more in that area, as I signaled to you in my first comment about the stats department. Okay. So I always wanted to get back into empirics. And I had an opportunity to work with Frank Bass. And I think Frank, that was an external point in my career. Oh, good. I collaborated with Dr. Bass, right? Who was, made so much to our field, as you know. And we were working on a paper that deals with the promotion of different kinds of advertising themes. And I fell in love with not only advertising, but also the question of advertising content, the role of content in advertising as a moderating factor. Economists study a lot of advertising in terms of advertising spending and elasticity. My interest in the topic came about do these different content in the ad itself, the message itself, right. is that contributing something? And so I, that was a nice paper, right? We looked at different themes of publication, but there's a little twist in that story, if I could just get, get that in. During sure. the, the process, in the review process, when the paper was way long, as you know, Dr. Bass became gravely ill. 
And at the time, I was the lead author of that paper up to that point. And my colleagues came to me and said, can we do something very small just to acknowledge Dr. Bass's contribution to the field? Let's make him the lead author, right? And I become the second author. Of course, this is what they said to me. You need to be aware that in the future, the paper will be known as Bass et al. <laughs> and not Bruce et al. Okay. And I said, fine, who cares? There'll be more papers. <laughs> the paper is not known as Bass et al. It's, it's, it's a widely cited okay. paper. Right. That's a nice story. So it's, it's looking at different So that was generous of you. So yeah. it's nice to have a last name starting with uh, B. Ah, yes, yes, yes. You yes, can't yes. be the first author if you're an equal author, at least. Yes, uh, yes, yes. Right? It looked good. as if it was a le by, 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 by letter, but it was, okay. it was actually Bruce first, and Frank was the last person, last author, but we, we did that in his honor. That was an interesting. So story. that's a foray into advertising. And, yes. Uh, yes. Since then, you haven't stopped. Looks like you've uh, really looked at all different angles. Yes, many, right? many different angles. Um, and uh, you know, which if I could just uh, think about it. Another paper that I think, it, so we look at many things, right? I worked with Natasha Zhang on looking at advertising of movies. Right. right? And, and that's an interesting question yeah. because there is a spillover problem, right? As yeah. In those days, we're thinking about movies in theaters and movie in the rental situation. And yeah. the question is, when is advertising appropriate? Is it better during the theater phase? Is it better in the, uh, in the rental Post phase? Theater. Yeah. And what is the role of word of mouth? And we discovered that essentially it's in the earlier phase. Word of mouth is much more effective after the movie has come to market, which is kind of makes sense, right? Because yeah. then you've built up at least some word of mouth. The product has been in the market for some time, okay. and we found that, that result. But it was an interesting result to look at advertising across different stages in the life cycle of a product, right? right. And that, that I think was a, a really interesting paper um, and we, all of us were assistant professors at the time, so it's nice to work with your peers <laughs> at, at, at uh, And of course, after that, I, I did, um, we had a nice paper to work with Prasad Naik. And that I think was quite interesting. As you know, um, this is an interesting problem in industry. Uh, advertising, as you know, from the perspective uh, of agencies, agencies are compensated based on intermediate effects like awareness, right? likability right. of the ad and how the ad influences brand thinking right right we could ask the agent to be compensated based on sales because they don't have no control over sales right. well the brand manager cares about sales right right and so an ad can be successful for the agency winning yeah, awards but, but, but not for the but not for the, the brand firm. there you go or the firm right and so the agency said to us can we find a way to establish how advertising build brands while simultaneously influencing the sales. Yes, yeah. And so the contribution there is not only the result, of course the result could be different from a different brand, but we showed that you can actually establish these connections and show a mechanism that we can, and for very so famous it, brands. It was very, very useful for managers. Uh, yes, exactly. That, uh, yeah. exactly. And did you collaborate with any uh, companies or industries for that particular project? Yes, uh, yes, um, it was, it was, well, it, it in, in, in truth, yes, because, because the data came from an ad agency. Came from <laughs> Yes, that's right. right. And so the perspective, that perspective was through the ad agency. Right. But we, we understand the full problem, right, from right. the brand perspective. Right. Well, that was a consulting effort. Um, and of course, um, it, it was collaborative work with Kai Peters, right. right, and it was his connection with um, 
an agency in Germany, a famous agency we all know, <laughs> and uh, they had this issue in the discussion with the clients. Right, right. and, and I know that you work a lot with uh, companies in either consulting mode or. Uh, yes, I do. Other, I do. Yeah. I do some. So, so you, what are some of the challenges those companies are facing with respect to advertising? And you know, I'm tempted to start with the uh, often used uh, uh, quote from John Wanamaker's "Half of oh, yes. spending is wasted." I don't know which half it is. And today, even uh, even the smallest of marketers, you know, the small business entrepreneurs, all the way to big companies. Uh, keep asking the same question, except that the smaller marketers are now going into more measurable, uh, you know, search ads and display ads yeah. on digital. So they may have a little bit handle. But well, what do you think? Is is the is the sto- is the question still n- not answered, yeah. or do we have some answer to that question? Well, we we know in general that advertising works, but but I think it's case by case. I think we have to we have to always measure advertising, right? Um, because there are many factors that can determine if advertising is not working or not. And so advertising is something that uh, firms will have to continue to measure. Uh, right. I think uh, it's, it's it, again, in, in the offline space, as you say, it's difficult to measure, right? But we can do some things, uh, um, perhaps with surveys, but it's limited, we understand. In visual space, we can measure, but there are some other issues in the visual space that we can perhaps talk about later on. But I think for, for in general, though, I think um, my issue with advertising research is that we need to begin to study more the role of content, right? right. It, it's, it's, of course, short term, we want to know if the thing works or not, right? Did I get a lift or did I not get a lift? But I think content, the creative component, um, can impact, can moderate the role. Of In that regard, I am uh, impressed by your new paper with uh, Werner and... Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, which is forthcoming in uh, JMR, if I'm correct. correct no, it's already right? there. It's already, it's already there. there. Sorry. Uh, I'm a bit late. No, no, <laughs> no. no, no. It's my fault. The, the thing uh, is, then, uh, you, you, nowadays you can post the, the paper on your site. Oh, right, right. They're a little strict about that. So, so, so you, had a, you, you have pre-advertised your paper already. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's nice. But, so, uh, you know, let's uh, walk us through your key findings in there. I found it initially very fascinating when I read it that you looked at the uh, um, content of several ads. I, I can't remember how many. And what struck uh, me very, very uh, interesting way was that uh, you found that there is a way in which the logo and these uh, content, yes, yes. small messages have effectiveness. And in fact, those moderate the effectiveness of advertising overall, right? So Precisely. tell us something more about those. Precisely. So, so just to, to clarify the point. So we had 60 brands, right? We had 60 brands. Uh, this is in Germany. And the idea was to understand how the, the messages, the actual brand messages, Message related to the brand influences performance of the brand in some way. Right? So we're looking at different kinds of messages. Messages that are conveyed, that are, that are attempting to create sales, say like logos and things like that. What we call brand elements in marketing, right? And also things like uh, the brand's its attributes, um, right? Uh, claims about its benefits and so on and so forth. Attribute benefits and salience type cues. We wanted to know how these things influence uh, advertising performance. And uh, we had 60 brands. And so the, the difficult task was to go collect the data, right? We had to employ judges, <laughs> PhD students, to actually look at these ads themselves, right? And we gave them instructions for them to infer. Now, of course, uh, deep learning could be help us in the future, right? In extracting this information. And so what we found though, interestingly, 
But it was that, it's that the salience type cues, the logo, the brand names, the, the, the representation of those in the ads that are working best in influencing ad, advertising performance. Right. right. And amongst, interestingly, uh, thank you, amongst the salience type cues, it's not the brand name. It's the That's logo. fascinating. Because the logo is more powerful than the, than the brand name. Exactly. Yeah, that is a, that's a fascinating insight. Uh, <laughs> Uh, on that same note, uh, you know, would you also try to say the logo is a little bit more subtle than um, the brand name because it's not so explicit. It's more in the background. Yes, it's, yes, uh, yes, so yes. would you also extend it to say uh, there are subliminal elements in the advertising that have a role, but we have not yet explored it in depth or understood yes, the effects? In absolutely. Depth. Absolutely. So, so there is something going on here, um, perhaps. And, and I, one thought came to mind was that we know that when people are out what advertising, right? They're not attending to the details, right? And so it's these, it's these cues, the logo cues and things like that. They're not listening to the actual attribute discussion of what the brand does and the benefits. Especially, well, we're looking, let's be careful here, we're looking at uh, consumer goods, right? Fast moving consumer goods. And so I don't think consumers are processing that much detail. But certainly the logo itself, right? Those are the things that they may take into the store, in the retail store, right? And, and that allows them to search and sort through products in the store. So simple subliminal cues from the logo in particular, I think is working here. And that I think that's, is something perhaps needs to be explored in more an experimental setting. But that I think was, was an amazing finding. Now, now the thing is, why it's amazing is that firms spend so much in developing brand names and, and worry about brand names in advertising when it's actually a logo. <laughs> right. You know, that brings us to another fascinating uh, uh, topic, which you've again worked on, which is digital advertising. Yes. So uh, we know that in 2020, now there's been new projections of uh, post COVID overall ad spend is expected to be down from last yes. year, about 5%. However, what uh, we know is that more than half of the spend, you know, the global spend is now expected to be 2020 is about $615 billion, out of which $335 billion, that's over 50% is going to be digital. And yes. about $180 billion in search, and then the $120 in maybe display right. or more. So we're moving very quickly, rather fast, cool. maybe digital. to digital. And again, take your findings on the uh, content, uh, yes, like logo yes, yes. and the subliminal. Because in digital, you don't have too much of time absolutely, or uh, attention. Uh, wouldn't that have more of a prominent salience and a role in the effectiveness in digital? Perhaps, perhaps so. Because again, you're right, the digital space right, is constrained in terms of what you can present. Um, and consumers avoid you know, digital advertising is not something consumers seek out. <laughs> so, well, um, this displays, uh, display advertising for sure. Yeah, so display advertising, yeah, I'm referring to. Right. And so, yes, uh, so I, one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to see is some of these ideas about content spillover into the digital space, right? right. For example, as I said, uh, maybe uh, we need to be, think carefully now about uh, with all the ad blocking that's going on, we have to think carefully about content as well. Uh, right, so we need to start thinking about design digital advertising, and right. perhaps, in in fact, brands could begin to use some of these ideas that we have from uh, from other spaces. Where, for example, I said the logo here, right, would be something that uh, should show up mostly in the, in these ads, um, because again, 
digital advertising. In fact, in, in the study here, most of these digital ads were essentially um, what I call digital promotions. Right? Right. They're like what you used to get in the coupon in, in your, you know, what in your right. coupons from Sunday clippings. Right. And it's been animated and, and presented in the digital space. That's exactly what I was studying. Right. And those ads, the content is quite limited. Right. And uh, so, yes, there could be something there. Right. But I, tell us, walk us through the key findings in that 2017 oh, yes. paper of yours. But what I found was very interesting, uh, if I remember correctly, you found mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, uh, some of these promotional digital ads, uh, display ads, uh, had very short-term, for short-term static, I think you looked at static versus dynamic right, right, right. type of content, right? Like uh, dynamic would be like using flash, uh, static would be using just a GIF image. And uh, then you found that for the short uh, static ones, you had short-term effect, but the dynamic one tended to have carryover a long, longer term. Yes, I, yes, uh, yes, yes. Interpreting yes. it correctly. Yeah. Yes, you're, you're interpreting so, it correctly. So that's one of one of the one of the things that interests me uh, in this project was I know we've done I've done a fair amount of work in advertising, and we know media matters, right? Right. And so when I came to the problem, I said, well, if media matters in general, maybe media matters in the context of digital advertising. So I was somewhat. Uh, Kind of making an analogy when I started that project, and so I wanted to look at the different kinds of media in, in, in similar in, in parallel. So formats, for example, animated versus static, it would be a, a classification. The size of the, the ad, right, or its orientation on on the page. Uh, I was looking at those things, and as well the content of the ads. And here we were able to, again, these ads were quite simple. They were either a price discount. Or some information about a product that's in the school <laughs> to the retailer, and we wanted to know what was effective, what format was effective: flash, dynamic versus static advertising, right? Um, uh, which theme? What is the appropriate? If I'm going to place a particular message, what format should I place it in, right? Is it appropriate for retargeting or targeting? So there are many questions I was posing to that data. We were able to get some nice results. One, as you said, you hinted to, was the fact that we saw that the animated had ads um, had longer carryover in the sense that in, in the knowledge would be they were more memorable than, than the static ads. You and know, if a, I were to take the equivalence, uh, Norris, uh, mm -hmm. we used to know that TV advertising, because it was uh, you know, the equivalent of dynamic, for example, it's visual exactly. and it's longer, they used to be used for brand building, whereas, you know, your uh, regular flyers or promotions were static and Absolutely. then they were like used for deals. Uh, exactly. Is that, is, is that analogy? That is, that is the exact analogy of right. In fact, I sort of expected that result because I'm familiar with the, the, the study you're, you're talking about, the kind of questions. So that was the, that's a perfect analogy for it. So animated ad was, uh, animated ads, of course, we didn't study videos here, right? <laughs> so animated ad was, in my mind, when I was looking at the results, it reminded me a little bit of- Yeah, it's relative, yeah. It's relative to say TV versus print, right? right. And so uh, that was a result that is just very strong, robust across uh, findings. But the other thing that was, I think the result that was, that perhaps resonated well with the, with, with the colleagues was, uh, Catherine Tucker had a 2013 paper that looked at retargeting. You know, retargeting is, is the strategy of following consumers. If they come to your site, you kind of cookie track yeah. them. And when they land on another site, the question is, what do you present to consumers? So I'm a retailer um, and I have a, a campaign running. 
someone comes to my site, browses around, and decides not to make a decision, right? And they visit another site, they end up at CNN, and we have tracked them to CNN. The question is, what information should I present that person? Now, if you think of path to purchase or funnel, you may say, you may ask, where is that person in the funnel? And as a result, what information should I pass to them? What format should it be in, right? And it turns out that, that the best thing you can do in this context was a price ad in a static format. <laughs> right. You know, th this reminds me, we see a lot of these frequent ads yes. served on us as yes. uh, browsers yes. or yes, yes, visitors. Yes. When we fail to click something, the retargeting ad comes back and gives you a, a deal, right? Yes. Say $10 exactly. off, just buy yes. it today. Right? You buy that, it is today. The, that is the finding. And again, these are early days, right? Sure. That is a strategy. Now, Catherine Tucker had done some work. I think she won the Odell Award for this. Right. right? The, the, her experiment showed that uh, for retargeting, it only works if the consumer's preferences, if you can establish consumer preferences. Here we're saying price sensitivity is one way of deciding what to serve the retarget consumer. Okay. So it, that, that I think was an important uh, sort of a um, link to establish work, which is always... But could, couldn't both be right in the sense that if you consistent with the preference if there are price sensitive consumers and non-price sensitive consumers yes exactly the price sensitive consumers what you make uh, say it really makes a lot of sense with the non-price sensitive consumers perhaps you know some other uh, some other mechanism right, mechanism right. So it, it, i think it's the same story it's the same it's the same story and, and uh but but as i said ours is a specific kind of preference right <laughs> price exactly. but there could be other factors other preferences as well so her comment was her, her work was sort of broader statement about retargeting or is, is more precise um, in terms of uh, pricing. But again, it's, it was beautiful to see that there was some confirmation of this result from some other papers as well. That's good to know. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. this has got very useful insights and implications for retailers. Yes. Uh, as you say, many of them are online only retailers or digitally native retailers. Many of them are pure, uh, uh, purely brick and mortar who are actually using the internet for uh, as a display medium primarily yes, yes. Uh, but many of them are omni-channel now both brick yes. and mortar and and increasingly in the post-covid world a lot of them have migrated even those who are not um, who are not so much online have to be forced have been forced to go online online yes so uh, you know is there any kind of uh, takeaway here for these kinds of retailers where they are trying to move more of the, their business online, both you know, order online, pick up offline, um, or order online, get it delivered um, from your store nearby. All of the above. Uh, is there any any advertising or retargeting implications here? Well, um, clearly, well, I mean, the, the idea of what to serve. At, the, the key problem is to understand where consumers are in the purchase funnel, okay. right? and what information to serve. And that's, that, that I think is a takeaway from the, from the study, right? But I think that's an area that needs to be explored even further. Later on, we can talk about a project we're working on that looks at that. But I think since my paper, um, advertising formats have become infinitely more complicated. <laughs> right. I they are becoming creative by the day. Exactly, think, exactly, right? exactly. So, so, it's, <laughs> so, so I think there is still work to be understand, to understand um, how these formats are, are, are whether they help or not. 
But, but I think the, the difficulty for, for firms is to understand how these things work jointly. Right. Um, so joint optimization, I know you're very good at uh, optimization and allocation of resources. So what are some of the challenges and how can we approach them? Yeah, so, so the, the difficulty is, of course, we need data, good data, um, and we need good, good you know, models, right, that can jointly assess the effect of different, of multiple, let's just put it in a single channel, right? Right. Multiple formats. Right, and how these uh, are driving sales. It cannot be a sort of a piecemeal thing. You have to look at the joint effects because there is synergy in these kinds right. of things. And we have to also think about, uh, I think the targeting mechanism is important. You have to understand uh, retargeting differently may require different kinds of messaging versus, as I said, initial targeting. Or, in fact, one result in the paper, uh, yes, it's quite interesting that we didn't discuss, is that we found that female shoppers right. tend to engage more so than male shoppers. Okay. <laughs> and they tend to browse. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Well, in, well in terms of what we find was that um, consumers, uh, female consumers tend to, uh, to click more often, right? And they, 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 they for example, can they engage or interact more with the- Interact answer. more, exactly. Okay. They interact more. They, put it this way, uh, let me be simplified. P uh, female shoppers tend to interact more with the campaign. Right. Not that they're but, purchasing more but they're interacting more with the campaign. And my analogy to that was uh, the fact that female shoppers may be, uh, what they call, you know, as I said, men buy and female and women shop. I had that kind of a site in the front okay. of the paper. But it, so, do you find anything specific for certain categories, uh, more so this behavior or less? Unfortunately, unfortunately it was for a single category. Oh, you did? Uh, it, 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 was a, it, for, okay, it was a retailer that um, is in a single category, put it that way. And so the result was not category specific. Specific, okay. All right. That, so that was, is understandable. Yeah, now, if, if, if you were to look at uh, you know, the future of advertising, let's uh, shift gear a bit. Where you mentioned that now the formats are increasingly getting creative. And I was fortunate enough to be part of a thought leadership team, right. which came out with a paper, which is going to come out in Journal of Advertising. Uh, which is on computational advertising. We yes. refer to computational advertising as any advertising that use the computational power to match the uh, ads with the target. Yes. Uh, so that the right ad with the right content, yes, right sir. message is served to the right person and not only right time, but on the right location now because, <laughs> you know, because uh, you now can uh, target people by their movements, right? So um, where do you think advertising is headed with such micro-targeting and micro-targetability? Um, uh, let's put it that way. Uh, do you think advertising is becoming uh, more personalized, more, uh, more direct, so much so that uh, it has ceased to become that creative uh, uh, area that lots of people <laughs> used to go into. Now it is becoming more of data scientists. Computer really. science, yeah, the computer science job task. I think both. I think advertising, the creative element, again, my interest has been content. I think my work is telling that content matters, right? Okay. Um, it's, it's nice to just to predict, right? But we still need to understand why people are making certain decisions. So these computational models essentially are focusing on making that match, that predictive thing. Um, you know, computer, in fact, computer advertising is emerging from com the computer science field. I'm happy with right. that. But I still think there is, there is a need to understand why certain things work, why people are responding. 
Okay. And so I think it's going to have to be sort of a two-way thing. Um, so both tools are necessary. We need to understand what works and why it works, as well as the matching problem, which is essentially a computational problem. Very good. So on that note, we know you discussed the fact that we also need to have better ways to, you know, understand the combined impact because it's very yes. tricky to model all these things. Um, is experimental uh, uh, approach the best way to go? Because at least we can separate and understand like different contexts. Uh, that. Uh, <laughs> You're asking me a political, no. <laughs> yeah, so no doubt, we, we need these, ex these experimental approaches, right? Because that's how we establish, as we know, experiments give us the, the closest thing we can get to causality. Right. And so causal, we have to understand causality. So I'm not, I, that is of course important, but uh, experiments can be, uh, one of the things I, I wanna see more are repeated experiments. That is, we need to also look at the long-term effects. Yeah. Exactly. So experiments, okay, I do an experiment, I establish causality, but that's cross-sectional. Right. I want to understand behavior over time. Right. Um, and, and so that I think is where, uh, of course we can have repeated experiments, but the experiments I'm seeing are not looking at temporal effects. Right. Right? And one thing in my paper, even though it was an experiment, I made an argument to the reviewers that dynamics effects over time is something that the experiments are not addressing. I, I clearly causality is on their side, but I don't see this looking at long-term behavior. That, that's a very challenging issue. So yes. maybe a series of experiments over time tracking Precise. it would be the way the experiment will go. We Precise. talk about experiments, uh, you know, the consumer behavior uh, researchers primarily use lab experiments, but yes. uh, field experiments is really gaining very popular. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking yeah. about field experiments. Field experiments. So, so now, I see, yeah. With all these platform companies like Google, uh, Facebook, uh, being able to do uh, countless number of experiments every day, um, yeah. uh, they call the A-B test. Yes. Uh, where are we headed in this space? Uh, are we going to be in a situation where there's going to be continuous A-B tests being performed and we, sh we will be knowing the effects of any particular uh, element, which is, you know, as you said, logo, uh, format, uh, different types of content, different types of message, tones, uh, the visual display, colors, everything. Can we all not know the answer to this question by doing these experiments at a large scale from these companies? And uh, one question that everybody is asking is, will the role of academics be diminished in, in these companies to have the data and are they able to really churn out and get the answers on the same day many times? Um, by doing this experiment. So the question is, do we have a role as academics? Given that these guys are the fire hose of data, right? right. Do they need us? Uh, I still think uh, that while these guys can, can run these experiments, um, I think there is still some limitation to the ability to look at these multiple effects in experimental context. Um, I, I just, I cannot see experiments replacing um, other kinds of approaches. Now the question, the question I always ask is, can we learn anything from observational data, right? Right. We, is it only experiments that we can learn from? I'm not so sure, right, because... Well, because observational data has been the, uh, the primary engine uh, that has been in the past that has been driving our understanding, right? So absolutely. it's not like uh, it's observational data without one at the expense of other. The question now is becoming how much is all blurring or are we needing both? Are we uh, also using 
uh, insights from one to guide the other and back? Right? That, precisely. My view is that observational data can drive research questions, right? And then we can design careful experiments to establish causality. Right. Um, observational data is still required. Now, there are some contexts in which, now this is kind of a while, but if you think of cigarette smoking, right? Much of what we learn about cigarette smoking, it's harmful effects, right? Um, on, on behavior is through observational data because we can't run cigarettes experiments and have force people to smoke cigarettes, right? <laughs> so, but I don't think, I'm, not, I'm, I'm careful there's no analogy like that in advertising. <laughs> but I still think there's a role for observational data. And again, one is, is to be able to drive these hypotheses that we can test with experiments. But, but I still believe that the, there's a difficulty in, in looking at some of these joint effects over time um, those are very difficult problems to address. Uh, in right. but, so there is a lot of scope and role for academic research. I completely agree with you because yes. that's what the, you know, I spent a sabbatical in the Bay Area and the Stanford yes. University and talking to all these people, they still can answer some questions, but there's Absolutely. a lot of questions they cannot answer and they need academics uh, right. uh, help on that. So I completely agree with you. Now, you mentioned that uh, the role of content and creativity is still important in advertising. And that yes. brings us to a very important issue because now we have a lot of students who are now coming on to advertising. Now they un understand that the new world of advertising is not just purely- Competition. Uh, not, not just purely, you know, you know, 20, 30 years ago, people joined advertising to express the creative side of, uh, yes. uh, of mind. But now, uh, you know, lot, there's a lot of movement towards pre-analytic side of mind. Yes. And now what you're saying is there's a role for both creative minds in, and uh, analytic minds. And there could be a blended yes. uh, mind that's emerging. So t that's, tell that's us a little bit more about it. This will be very useful for students and uh, current students and future students. Okay. I think, um, so I'm also doing work on, on branding, right? The advertising right. role in building brands. And um, in that space, uh, so I'll give you an example of a project I'm working on. I'm working on a project in which I'm considering how the content of the ad itself influences consumers' brand belief and how those jointly affect consumers along the path, right? So we have to understand what messages, what information consumers, what I want to figure out is what information does consumers need at every stage that's of, the, of their customer journey, yeah. Precisely. Yeah. That requires an understanding of, of consumer behavior. It, it, it understands uh, the, the message becomes more central now, right? The actual message yeah. in the ad itself. So for brand marketing, I think advertising has to remain focused on content, right? Because if, if, if brands are valuable, if brands drive sales, then an advertising can build brands, and to build brands, you have to create knowledge. <laughs> then it comes down to content. That's right. So there is a role for Absolutely. creating um, very, and, and you know that brings us to another bigger question that's being asked now. The brands have value proposition. The past, you know, used to have a positioning statement and used to advertise it widely. And uh, you know, it, if you had a resonating statement, you used to get, capture a lot of market share, at least for consumer-based brands. But now with the uh, increasing role of computational elements and data being uh, driving the force and with consumers making decisions based on assistance using such as smart speakers and so on, there's also this debate about how, you know, is the role of brand uh, exaggerated now 
is you know some some have even gone to the extent of this brand really dead uh you know that's the other spectrum which is arguing that you know maybe the brand messages <laughs> don't have as much of importance in today's world uh particularly you saw in post post uh, pandemic uh situation where consumers could not even get the brands of their choice they were forced to buy like whatever brands were available and then since they got used to it they probably reorder using amazon alexa or google home and then brands roles could be diminished what do you think uh uh well, is going on well well i think well i mean i think covid this is a special time right right <laughs> and and so to use a time like this to make predictions about the future is quite risky right. <laughs> so that's my first reaction to that but but still um uh it'll take some convincing to say that brands do not matter because we we look at the role of brands in society how people love brands and associate with brands um and find meaning in brands uh and brand you know so I, it's hard to see how brands do not matter um but the question is in my view is you know how do we build brands there's advertising have a role in building brands right um, what is the type of advertising that precisely the type of advertising always exactly. delivered now the, the thing we may have to worry about is how the kind of advertising offline versus online um how is it delivered can we can we communicate brand belief and can we establish brand preferences in in a in a, in a digital format um and and user generated advertising like precisely 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 where you don't have control over right. the message and so on and so forth so it's very challenging for right. some brands the users actually uh, they they build the brand image right precisely precisely way. precisely so that's an interesting question too right uh when when you outsource brand meaning you allow the consumers to establish brand meaning um i think uh that i think is an interesting question the question then is uh the meaning that originate with consumers i think the the dove campaign for beauty remember i mean you, you teach that course that that case and yes. for a social uh, i think it's campaign. one of the most uh uh, uh famous <laughs> cases right 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 famous case in which they actually allow generate conversation amongst consumers and allow them to help extend the meaning of the dog brand in that sense that was an example of that i suspect we may see more of that kind of thing in the future but again that's very risky right because um again consumers you can have, have your brand message hijacked absolutely absolutely so that's right. is that what you're saying that's the challenge that's the right. challenge so, so but but i think uh what you're been saying is fascinating uh if anything the future for advertising looks brighter and better yeah, that's I, what I i'm seeing see, yes. because there are so many unanswered questions so many fascinating ways in which advertising is evolving yes. both in terms of content media messaging um you know all and, the and targeting measurement issues targeting yeah exactly. uh, a lot of problems to solve and a lot of uh, innovative ways in which to approach advertising no is that a fair statement very much so and i think it's it's an exciting era to be in Um, and I've been studying advertising in the past, and I continue to study it in the future. Uh, and there's so many interesting problems, and also, and now we can approach the problem in many different ways. We just talked about computational right. experimentation, observational data, different kinds of media, online, offline, amongst online, multiplicity of ways, formats, sizes. This is and this, this is where uh, you know researchers like you are uh, so useful, trying to uh, unearth and distill more insight. Right. but uh, i want to take it to a more general level in this age of uncertainty and uh, uh global uh well-being that everybody's looking for how can advertising be used more positively uh, uh you know in in a social 
welfare, creating social benefits over the long term. Uh, so is there, at, are there some ways? Yeah. We can look at the COVID pandemic right. and ask ourselves, can advertising contribute to this discussion? One of the things in, in the COVID pandemic is a fair amount of misinformation, right? Right. And um, in some cultures, you would see public service advertising advocating certain responsible behaviors. Right. But you rarely see brands touching this topic in America. And right? there's, there's kind of dancing around. <laughs> I think true. advertising can play a role here. Yeah. Firms who advertise can play a role. But again, we are in a... This so is is it, do you think advertisers are too... Uh, 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 Risk-averse? Very, very, very risk-averse. One of the things, okay, one of the things I've, I've been thinking about, well, you, you know the stories about, um, for example, advertising on YouTube and then your, your, ad being, your, your ad being associated with some kind of a harmful, say, say anti-vaxxers or, right? right. Uh, <laughs> or climate deniers or things, or even worse, right? And so many brands may, may, may pull their advertising if they fear that the ad may even, even physically link to those kinds of things on the same space. Um, I think sometimes uh, brands are just too, too cautious, too risk averse. Um, in those cases, I can that understand- That sounds more like defensive advertising, <laughs> but in, in a way, can, we, can advertising be used to proactively, uh, you know, help uh, more? I'm not even taking public service advertising, but uh, I'm thinking about a social component of advertising uh, in every brand. You know, nowadays with the yeah. millennials and the Gen Zs, they, we know that they really care for uh, what the brand stands for. So so yeah, the ESG, uh, they care for environmental, social, and governance of uh, uh, the brand. So can a brand uh, work in, you mentioned content messages being important. Can they make this as part of their overall message or content uh, yes. in the long run? Yeah, I think so. I, th I think one of the things that this generation uh, likes is, is authenticity. Right, and authenticity in advertising is is is, I think it's necessary to target millennials. Um, but we can also again, but again, brand has to be a brand has to be credible, right? Right. To take some of these positions, but the brands that are credible, I think, can take positions uh, that offer some social value, um, you know, advocate for certain issues that, uh, that 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 people care about, and in the end, it can benefit the brand in some kind of a halo way. Uh, so I think okay. yes. So you, you, you favor a little bit proactive. Yeah, I, I do, I do. I'm not, I'm not, I don't fear it. I think, <laughs> again, people are, brands are risk averse because, you know, it's investments and people can lose money. But I think if a brand is, has sufficient credibility in the market, they can take certain positions. But ultimately, it is the consumers that, drive, that should drive it is, that, right? It so is the consumer. consumers like millennials and Gen Zs, they really care about they something. Care about brands have to, have to pay attention to that, right? Absolutely. Um, so if you're talking about... Yeah, if some brands are targeting, let's say, senior citizens yeah. who care about something else, you know, care about uh, healthcare, Precisely. care about, uh, uh, you know, peace of mind, then they should be looking uh, more closely at those uh, social right. benefits, right, in addition to that, right? But, but it has to be, to be fair, it has to be undertaken cautiously, right? Because um, those are, those are in, in a divided society, uh, we have to be, <laughs> I can understand why brands are, are cautious about getting into these kinds of issues, right? Um, right. But, but they can benefit you depending on who you're targeting, no doubt. No Excellent, doubt. yeah. Now, are there anything else that you would see in the future that we should be thinking about? Oh, um, yeah. 
Yeah. In, in terms of digital advertising, though, I think there's, there's, a, there's a long-term issue that I was thinking about years ago, and I have not gone back to it. It's this notion, again, you said every, a lot of firms are moving into digital space, but there are some problems over that space. One is the notion of viewability, right? right. Uh, we can't guarantee that Twix, someone yeah. saw the ad. Right? There's no reliable measure of attention in this, right. in this context. And so, uh, and so uh, the system can be, can be gained. Right, so we can have potential for fraud. We still have click frauds and exactly. We still it's still a problem. It hasn't gone away. Yeah. I don't even yeah. talk about it. What it has done is drive down impression prices, right? Right. Because we're sort of baking fraud into it. But the question is, even even these prices are advertisers getting the value for their okay. investment. Right. We it's don't still, know this. There's still improvements to be made. Yeah, right. we don't know this, right? Right. Um, and so. Uh, the other thing is the presence of ad blockers nowadays. Right, right. And also, we didn't talk about privacy in the last... Uh, yeah, we don't talk uh, about privacy. In the last These couple are... of years, privacy has taken a huge yeah. uh, meaning with GDPR and CCPA, California Consumer Protection Act. Um, all of these uh, would uh, need another <laughs> program yeah, to another really conversation, discuss, right? right? So these are some sort of lingering issues out there. And if you're going right. to be involved in digital advertising, you've got to be aware of these issues. Um, so we've just scratched the surface. We just scratched the surface. That's another right. problem. I no, agree no, no, with no, you on that. Not like this. <laughs> yeah, but it's been fascinating talking to you, Norris, and uh, you've you covered much. a whole uh, range of issues and, yes. and you've offered a lot of insight. Uh, are there any final messages that you'd like to give to our viewers who range from students to uh, managers to entrepreneurs to member companies? So there were, some of them are retailers, uh, faculty, staff. It's a tall task. <laughs> Whoever you can pick, uh, uh, I think. I think primary focus. Well, what's on my mind? I think from the standpoint of our colleagues, researchers, right? Uh, in marketing, we hear a lot about endogeneity, heterogeneity, and those kinds of uh, issues. Right, right. Um, but I think there's another kind of robustness that we we often ignore, and that is we often make assumptions about functional form and randomness. Right. without any consideration that these things can actually influence our results. And I have a paper in GMR, it's a methods paper, right. in which I spend a lot of time worrying about non-parametric methods and so on and so forth. And I find that these things are important as well. Right? They can bias and skew our findings as well. Yeah, I'm um, looking forward to reading that paper yeah. soon. Because, so, uh, you know, it's very important for us to know what we don't know. Well, exactly, exactly, exactly. Right. Yeah. So the other thing is, from the practitioner standpoint, I think I know data is becoming a big thing, um, but I still feel that um, you know artificial intelligence and, the, and these kinds of AI techniques are predictive things. And I think as marketers, as an academics, as scholars, we still need to understand uh, so, the industry to understand what is happening. It's important to predict things, but we need to also understand why things are, are happening. And this is kind of like a message right. to so we need to know the whys are explained. Why exactly? Yeah rather than just exact matching, just making the match, understand why the match occurred, and so on and so forth. You need to understand the why. I think that's important for even industry. For students, I think uh, my area is quite exciting. We just discussed, right? There are a lot of things to study, a lot of approaches to the problem. Um, and, and as long as we appreciate how these approaches help each other, I, I think we're fine. Excellent. Thank you so much, uh, Norris. Uh, again, thank you for taking the time out. And, uh, I really enjoyed uh, listening to all the results and your viewpoints and insights. I hope our viewers uh, feel the same. Thank you again, and good luck with the rest of your research. That's Thank you very much, Venki. Thank you for the invitation. Take care.